The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have a special guest and actually an unusual and interesting guest. Her name is Saru Jayaraman. She's got a fascinating uh, background, both as an educator and an attorney. She's been really focusing on restaurant labor relations and the way we treat uh, employees who basically prepare and serve us food when we go out to eat. And this began after 9-11 when a number of family members of uh, workers who were at Windows on the World uh, perished in the terrorist attack. And that led her down a path of exploring all sorts of things uh, related to the restaurant industry. She has been working with restaurateurs such as Danny Meyer, uh, helping to create a fairer workplace for employees, uh, and she's really very much influenced the latest movement in dining out, which is the end of tipping, uh, replacing tipping with a, a flat salary and building uh, the cost of service into the meal as opposed to leaving it uh, an option for for diners. And some people say they really like this. There are a lot of folks who don't like the pressure of tipping, don't like feeling like they're obligated to over tip or to what have you. They want to pay for a service and and know exactly what it's going to cost beforehand. Uh, she has been one of the thinkers at the forefront of this movement, and a number of restaurants have adopted this idea as a way to just let people know exactly what their meal is going to cost. Uh, the conversation ranged far and wide. I think it's really a, a fascinating subject, and I think you'll enjoy hearing more. Uh, so without any further ado, my conversation with Saru Jayaraman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Saru Jayaraman. She is the co-director of the Restaurant Opportunity Center and the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. She's also the creator of a delightful app, The Diner's Guide to Ethical Eating. A little background on Saru. She went to undergraduate UCLA, where she studied poli-sci and international development studies. That took her to Harvard and the John F. Kennedy School of Government, where she graduated with a master's in public policy before going to Yale Law School. Her specialty these days is restaurant labor employment. Saru, welcome to Bloomberg. Great. Great to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, following 9-11, the World Trade Center is destroyed. Most of the employees at Windows on the World, which were on the top floor, essentially everybody who made it to work that morning, perished in the uh, in, in the terrorist attack. How did that evolve into advocacy for restaurant workers? 
Yeah, so on that morning, 73 workers actually died at Windows on the World, and about 250 workers lost their jobs, and about 13,000 restaurant workers lost their jobs in the months and weeks that followed the tragedy. And so I worked with one of the former waiters at Windows on the World, a guy named Fekak Mamdu, and we started the organization initially as a relief center to help all of these thousands of restaurant workers in New York get back on their feet, especially the Windows workers, but... Um, because this is one of the largest and fastest growing industries, and because actually there is no union in this industry, there's very little support for these workers, the minute we opened our doors, we started getting cries for help from workers all over the city and then all over the country, and then employers and consumers, and it just kept growing. So I waded my way through college and grad school. I attended bar and did short order chefs. And and knowing that that wasn't my career, I kind of shrugged and said, laughed at what a horrific industry it is, but really there are some horror stories in the restaurant industry. Did you, you worked as a, as a waitress in, in school? I actually didn't. My, you know, that's kind of one of the in, incredible discoveries actually in doing research for the book. You know, I went back and traced my family's origins in the restaurant industry and, you know, my family actually were owners of a restaurant, worked in restaurants. Great-grandfather? Great-grandfather mm-hmm. in South India, owned a restaurant for decades and decades and decades and employed lots and lots of people. Um, but I never worked in a restaurant until we actually opened our own restaurants through Rock. So learned a lot from the workers the minute after 9-11 was thrown together with these workers and really tried to do something to change this industry. It's a really tough business. Yeah. The stat is 90% of all new restaurants close within two years. So the question is, what can you do to make restaurants, given how terrible a track record they tend to have, a better place to, to work? Well, the truth is that, yes, it is true that lots of new restaurants fail, but the numbers show that actually the number of new restaurants that succeed and stay open um, far exceeds that because it is still the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. In second terms of the, largest sector yes, of the U.S. economy. That's it's, amazing. It's amazing. It's 11 million workers. One in 12 Americans works in this industry. One in two of us have worked in this industry in our lifetime. sure. So it's not like it's an industry that's going anywhere or is tiny right. or small. And there are plenty of restaurants, many of whom I profile in the book, that have shown that you actually can treat your workers well, pay them well, and stay in business for a really long time. Let's talk a little bit, though, about the app you created, The Diner's Guide to Ethical Eating. Tell us about that. So for years, people would say, well, we know that things are so bad. Where can we eat? What can we do? How can we support? And so we started actually doing research and doing research on the 150 most popular chains in America and every year giving them ratings on issues of wages and benefits and promotions, and then also rating restaurants that were trying to work with us to do better. And so now the app includes ratings of the 150 most popular restaurants in America, mostly chains, Mm -hmm. and also 150 other restaurants that are doing it right. And we give awards to restaurants that provide good wages and good working conditions. So it uses a geolocator to see where you are and tells you how the restaurants around you are faring on these issues. Now, there aren't enough restaurants in America that are getting Mm -hmm. awards for you to only eat in those restaurants. So the app was never meant to tell you, eat here, don't eat here. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's a tool for you to be able to communicate your values wherever you do end up eating out. Is this 
significantly downloaded or a lot of people using yeah, the app? Yeah, actually, when we first put it out, Mark Bittman wrote about it in the New York Times, you know, a great food writer, and several hundred thousand people downloaded it in the first day wow. when he wrote about it. And it's because people, I think, really want to know, how is this restaurant treating its workers? Do they offer paid sick days? Which, by the way, 90% of these workers don't have a single paid sick day, so most that of was the most. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. No. That was the most, uh, we're going to get to that. Yeah. That was the most horrifying stat in the book. Most of us just close our eyes and don't want to know. But some of these stats, if you want to stay healthy, you have to know. You have to and know. It's yeah. just, it's just terrible. So in the last minute we have in the segment, you talk about the other NRA. Yes. Let, let's discuss that. <laughs> so it's not the National Rifle Association. No. This is the National Restaurant Association. Yes. What's your relationship with them and how helpful or how much of an impediment are they to improving labor conditions. Well, they really don't like us. They've been <laughs> <laughs> Why am I surprised? <laughs> they represent the Fortune 500 chains, the Olive Gardens and the Taco Bells and McDonald's. And they've been lobbying to keep wages as low as $2.13 an hour for decades and decades. In fact, that is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers. And in doing research for this book, find, come to find that their power doesn't date back 20 or 30 years. It date back 150 years to the emancipation of the slaves. Who is tipped at McDonald's or Taco Bell. Nobody's How? tipped at McDonald's or Taco Bell, but they've managed to keep the wage even for those workers as low as seven dollars and twenty five cents. So that, and which is the national minimum wage, That's which right. is really way behind inflation. If, it, back if to it had gone up with inflation, 60s. it would be at eighteen dollars. That, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Saru Jayaraman, and we're talking about the restaurant industry. Uh, and one of the subjects that came up was an op-ed that you had written in the New York Times, sort of misleadingly headlined, Why Tipping is Wrong. So so let's jump right into this. What's the problem with tipping? It's actually not the problem with tipping. It's the fact that this industry, the restaurant industry, has used tipping as a way to not pay their own workers. So it turns out tipping didn't originate in the States. It originated in the feudal homes of Europe. And when it came to the States, there was actually a massive anti-tipping movement so strong that six states passed bans on tipping. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. Now, that's kind of changed in Europe. Well, tipping that, seems to be going away. Well, it was Europe. gone. I mean, that was the turn of the 19th century. And that movement that started in the States spread to Europe and succeeded in Europe, which is why there's no tipping in Europe or very little. Here in the States, the restaurant industry actually squashed that movement and demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves. This is right around the time of emancipation. Right. And not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And that's actually how the very first minimum wage law in the United States, which was part of the New Deal in 1938, said you can get the minimum wage as a tipped worker either through your wages or through tips, which gave tipped workers the right to a $0 minimum wage. And we've gone from a $0 minimum wage in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour, which is the current federal minimum wage for workers who earn tips. And over that 100-year period, the Restaurant Association has said, it's okay, we don't need to pay these workers, they make a ton of money in tips, we don't have to actually give them a wage. They describe a white guy working at a fancy fine dining steakhouse sure. when, in fact, 70% of these workers are women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce, make very little money in tips, and suffer from the worst sexual harassment of any industry I've in read some States. horror stories. You, yeah. you detail some in, in the book. So let me push back. Let okay. me take the other side of the argument. Look, we open a restaurant. We don't know how well it's going to do. We hire a bunch of people. Hopefully, they're pretty good. If the restaurant takes a while to be discovered, 
well, we don't have a huge overhead in, in labor. We're all kind of suffering. We're running at a deficit the first few months. The restaurant picks up a, a, an audience. It gets popular. And suddenly everybody's making money. What's wrong with that model? Well, the thing is that that's the traditional model, the old model, and that's why the book is called Forked, because there actually is another way of doing things. California and six other states actually require that this industry pay a full minimum wage to their workers and let tips be on top of that. And so those- you say full minimum wage. So you're a waitress at an IHOP in California, and you're making seven thirty-five an that's hour. That's right. Well, actually plus making tips. nine, which is the California the state, state minimum, minimum wage, plus tips. And uh-huh. California actually has the largest and fastest growing restaurant industry in the country, LA has a larger restaurant industry than New York City, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. They have higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the restaurant industry, higher job growth among servers, even higher rates of tipping. We tip better on the West Coast than in New York or the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers. Mm. So the opposite can actually be said to be true, that if you have a standard that's set for a whole state or hopefully the whole country that requires every restaurant, like every other industry, to pay the full minimum wage, you will follow that business model and make it work. So we've been watching forecasts of Seattle restaurant industry imploding. And actually what's happened when Seattle raised their minimum wage, which I think is on the way to 15, it's now about 11. Um, their restaurant industry is it's exploding. It's doing it's really true. well. Yeah. But, you know, I think people get it backwards. The region is doing really well so they can support more restaurants. But there's no other way to describe it. The the number of new openings and new permit applications. That's right. Just trending straight upwards in Seattle. That's they right. don't care about eleven dollars minimum right. wage. Frankly, it's trending upwards everywhere. This is an industry that's growing astronomically everywhere. We just made world history last year, becoming the first nation on earth in which we're now spending more money on eating out than we do in the home money on eating food in the and home. And that's a sign of a, a wealthy nation with a lot of disposable. Well, income. not just that. It's a sign of a nation that even when we're unemployed, we just keep eating out. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that's amazing. So let's talk about what the system should look like. Yeah. Ideally, what do you replace the $2 minimum wage with? What does everybody in, what should everybody in a restaurant make and what should we do about tipping? So what we're looking at right now are policies that are moving in lots of states around the country and in Congress called one fair wage, getting rid of this two-tiered wage system, having everybody follow California and the seven states that have done this, and just let this industry, like every other industry, pay the full minimum wage, let tips be what they're meant to be, which is a bonus or a gratuity on top of a wage, a not the way wage itself. Yeah, Th- that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so will this, if we were to get rid of tipping or increase the minimum wage for, for wait staff, yeah. will that, will that raise the cost of, of going out to eat? No, I live in California and I got to say, I spend way more on eating out here in New York city or in DC where the wage is $2 and 77 cents an hour than when I eat at home in That's California. That's a function of real estate though, isn't it? You're in a much higher real, uh, real estate expense and, I think the cost of labor in restaurants is really a small, and the cost of food it's is so small. True. It's the real estate and then the all the equipment That's and everything right. else. Food prices have risen astronomically over the last many years, much right. faster than wages, way faster than wages. Last decade, uh, milk over $6 exactly. a gallon, meat quadrupled. Exactly, exactly. And fine meat just keeps going up and exactly. up Exactly. It's funny. People always ask about cost of food going up with labor, but you don't ask, does cost of food go up with food price increases or rental price increases, right. which, as you're right, are much bigger part of a business than labor. Than the labor. That, yeah. That's really interesting. And what about the smaller mom and pop stores? Can they support a high 
higher minimum wage. They're actually the ones that are thriving in California. They're thriving. Really? Yeah. And, and I and even the chains. I mean, across the board, everybody's doing better if you look at job growth in these seven states and the 43 states. But maybe the best evidence of this is the 175 restaurants that have worked with us to form an alternative national restaurant association called Raise. And they range from chains all the way down to small mom and pop restaurants around the country that actually provide livable, even what they call thrivable wages, Mm -hmm. benefits, uh, advancement opportunities. And they're doing well, not in spite of treating their workers well and paying them well, but actually because they're treating their workers well, they find less turnover, higher profitability, higher profit productivity. The workers are happy. The customers are happy. And they are thriving as businesses. We watched Walmart fight an increase in minimum wage for many years and then ran into a problem of being unable to find workers. That's right. And then retain them. That's right. They did they did two minimum wage raises, a dollar last year, and they're up to ten dollars now. And they're already showing signs of a reduced turnover. And when you employ two million people, turnover is a big deal. It's a big deal in our industry too. Our industry has the highest rates of turnover of any industry in the United States. And our research shows you can cut your turnover almost in half. Wow by treating your workers well and paying them well. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Saru Jayaraman. She is the co-director of the Restaurant Opportunity Center and director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. She's also the author of Forked, A New Standard for American Dining. And we've been discussing the minimum wage and the impact of that uh, on the restaurant industry. So let's go back to the history of this, which you referenced earlier. Why is it that restaurants can get away with paying so little? Because they originally, the original tipped workers in this country were actually former slaves, both restaurant workers and uh, Pullman train car porters. They That's were the amazing. original I had tipped no workers. Idea I actually that. didn't either till we did research for the book. And um, this industry, the restaurant industry, made the argument that they wouldn't be able to survive if they actually had to pay these workers a wage. So they basically hired newly freed slaves, demanded the right to pay them nothing. That idea was codified into the very first minimum wage law passed in 1938, which gave tipped workers the right to a $0 minimum wage. These were mostly black workers, former slaves. And we've gone from that $0 wage to a $2.13 wage today. Hey, that's progress over a century, Over a right? century, right. That, stop and think about if you're arguing as a free market person who doesn't want government regulation, how can you say our business model depends on free labor? Exactly. Makes very, very little sense. (laughs) I mean, honestly, that was the argument of the cotton industry, right? That they... Their whole business model and the economy depended on free labor. And if we're still making the same argument today, it really bring, you know bears question of, is this a sustainable business model? <laughs> so, so I mentioned some of the stats were really horrifying in the book. Seven of the 10 lowest paying jobs and the two absolute lowest paying jobs in America are in restaurants. That's right. And when you combine that with knowing this is the largest and fastest growing industry in America, what you end up with is essentially this industry proliferating the low-wage economy, the low-wage floor of the entire economy and bringing down the floor for the entire nation. Um, And it's going to be, these are the jobs that are going to be available for our children. I teach at UC Berkeley. I would say a good third to a half of my students work in the industry and many stay in the industry after college now with a UC Berkeley degree because these are the jobs that are available. 
That um, is not encouraging. If uh, How are you going to pay student loans on It's hard to pay student tips? loans on these wages, but I will say the way we look at these jobs also is not right. You know, it should be okay for a UC Berkeley graduate to go into this industry because these are skilled professions. These are very skilled professions. And in other countries like Europe, in, in Europe, these are seen, hospitality is a profession. You go to school to be a hospitality professional. It's something seen as very, uh, you know, skilled. The issue here is not that these aren't good professions. The issue is that they're not valued as professions, both in terms of pay and benefits, in terms of even this whole idea that these workers should rely on the largesse of customers. It detracts from the professionalism of this industry. So on my most recent vacation, I read the non-academic version of your book, which is Kitchen Confidential Mm -hmm. by Anthony Bourdain's. And it's hilarious and ribald and just you know, also rather uh, R-rated, but <laughs> it tells essentially the almost the same exact story you tell from an academic perspective of how horrific a lot of the quality is of handling food, how high the turnover is in restaurants, how waitresses are constantly sexually harassed, both by, forget the employees, but by management. management that's right. And, and so the question is, what makes this industry such a frat house mess? Why is this this way? I mean, in our opinion, all of our research shows that the real root of the problem is this two-tiered wage system because 70% of tipped workers who live on that lower wage of $2.13 or here in New York State, it's $7, whatever it is in the state, they rely completely on their tips. 70% of those workers are women and they're Mm -hmm. women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and basically pay their families on customer tips. And our research shows that Having to rely on tips for your income not only makes you vulnerable to all kinds of gross inappropriate behavior from customers, but we also find that management actually encourages these workers to dress more sexy, wear tighter clothes, show more cleavage so that they can make more money in tips. And when you're forced to subject yourself to objectification, that makes you vulnerable to coworker and management harassment. And we're not talking about restaurant chains like Hooters or other restaurants where people are scantily clad. No, We're talking about family restaurants like Denny's and IHOP's and everything I else. took my two little girls to the Chili's. They're three and five years old. It's a family restaurant, right. Chili's. And the uniform was, all the servers were women. Short and, skirts. Yes, and the uniform was a tight t-shirt that said fresh across the breasts. Mm-hmm. A very tight t-shirt. And you have to ask yourself, what are we selling? Because, you know, it is the Chili's and the Olive Gardens, but on the other hand, there's a whole new segment of this industry called the restaurant. And Hooters is not the only Come one. Come on, that's no, a real thing. That's a real segment. I never heard that well, well, there's two other incredibly fast-growing chains in the restaurant segment. It's Hooters, but it's also Wild Tilted Kilt and Twin Peaks, one of the fastest-growing chains on. in America. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Wild Wings that does something yes, very similar. similar. So the other two restaurants are? Tilted Kilt and Twin... Tilted Kilt, okay. Can't say I heard of that. And Twin Peaks, which... You know, you just, what are we selling? They're not referring to the television no. show. I got it. That, that, that's astonishing. Yes. My special guest today is Saru Jayaraman, and she is the director at, at UC Berkeley of the- Food Labor Research Food Center. Labor Research Center, and author of Forked, A New Standard for American Dining. And let's jump right into the really disgusting, horrifying parts of your book. <laughs> this quote just- took me back on my heels. The CDC reports that as many as 90% of all norovirus, and that's better known as the stomach flu, trace back to sick 
restaurant workers. Now, that is both horrifying and it raises the obvious question. People are coming into work sick, handling food. That's How right. is that allowed? Well, 90% of workers in this industry nationally do not have a single paid sick day, and two-thirds report cooking, preparing, and serving our food when they're ill. And we have heard so many stories over the years, workers working with typhoid fever, working workers working with hepatitis. I talk a lot about Olive Garden. You know, Olive Garden got an award from Michelle Obama for being, you know, great for healthy. kids, healthy for kids, because they had carrots with the breadsticks. Uh, they serve salad. Yes. Typhoid optional. <laughs> That's right. Because the same time they got the award from Michelle Obama, a worker in a Fayetteville, North Carolina restaurant was forced to work with hepatitis A. Oh my goodness. 3,000 people had to get tested by the <gasps> county, sued the restaurant, and wow. won class action. That same year, there were two norovirus outbreaks in Olive Gardens in Indiana and Illinois. I mean, it is, it's an epidemic. It is, it is a source of epidemics, and Literally. it's a public health disaster. Now, these restaurants really really must not be happy with you when you publicize this stuff. But this is all, this isn't stuff you're digging in the stacks at no. Yale for. This is front page public, news locally. Yeah, public information. CDC also reports a good one in 10 workers are currently working with extreme diarrhea and vomiting. I mean, not As opposed just, to regular. Exactly, right, on the job. Projectile vomit. Exactly. That sounds healthy. That sounds, you know. <laughs> in a restaurant. And so, not, I mean, no paid sick, sick days no, at all. No, And if they're sick and they don't want to come in, they're told they're fired if you exactly. don't come in. Exactly. Even when the managers know they're ill. Exactly. And again, this whole system of forcing these workers to live for the most part off their tips, not paying them a wage, means that the only way to actually get your wages is to go to work and work for tips, even when you've got hepatitis A. That's un unbelievable. All right, so let's talk a bit about promotions, which is another way you measure different restaurants and how well they treat um, how well they treat their employees. Yeah. What what typically is the standard practice, and what do you think is the preferred or yeah. or, or standard? You know, there's a myth in this industry that you can start as a dishwasher and own your own restaurant. Well, 66% of the six or 7,000 workers we've surveyed nationally have said they've never received a raise or a promotion. And all the turnover in this industry isn't actually people going through this industry to something else. It's people moving from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant, just looking for better opportunities to feed their families. Because a lot of these 11 million workers actually take a lot of pride in their work. They really enjoy hospitality, but they want to move up and there are generally no opportunities. Opportunities to move so up. So they don't and, get a promotion internally. So if you go to another exactly. restaurant across the street, maybe you can. You have a shot at a maybe. promotion. You're applying for essentially a better job than what you have. Exactly. And a lot of, unfortunately, the lack of mobility is very, very much due to race and gender. We find that mm -hmm. people of color are not able to get into the very best jobs in the industry, which are server and bartending positions in very fine dining restaurants. Women are often blocked from those positions. We did what's called match pair audit testing studies where we sent in hundreds of white people and people of color women and men into very fine dining restaurants in four mm -hmm. cities and found that people of color had or white people had twice the chance of a person of color even when the person of color had a better resume at getting the best job and that women were often blatantly told we don't hire women here if it's a very fine dining restaurant yes really? even today so i'm naive and here in manhattan you go into a restaurant, waiters, bartenders, servers, whatever, except for like the 100-year-old steakhouses where the guys have been working there for 50 years and no one serving food is under 60. Um, it's pretty well integrated here in New York City, or am I looking at things from a, a 
naive perspective. Unfortunately, it's really segregated here in New York City, believe it or not. Maybe as the average customer, you don't know who's in what position. Right. But most servers in very fine dining restaurants in New York City are white men. I mean, just really? statistically, yeah. Huh. And the the finest dining, the, the finer it is, the more you're talking about waiters and captains and bartenders and very right. fine dining, the more likely it's going to be white men. Women are not allowed to work the very best shifts in these fine dining restaurants. People of color have a very hard time getting into these jobs, just statistically. In fact, huh. there's a median wage differential of $4 an hour between white workers and workers of color. So you'll see people of color on the dining floor, but they'll be bussers and runners. I gotcha. They won't be the server who interacts with you. Uh, now that I think about it, um, uh, you're probably right. Although I'll I'll not mention that some of the funkier bars and and pubs and stuff, it's pretty colors yeah. of Benetton type of yes. Staff. Funkier bars, you tend to make less money in tips mm-hmm. than you would at a really fine dining. The, the good steakhouses, these people are pulling in five hundred plus. That's a right, night, and easily. those are largely white guys. Um, I will say there are some who do it really well. So Tom Colicchio here in New York. Um, Re- what restaurants? Uh, he owns all the craft, the craft restaurants. Sure. So craft steak, mm-hmm. you know, witchcraft, all these different craft restaurants. As you might know, he's also the star of Top Chef. Yes. Um, and he's actually known in this industry for really having people of color in all levels, management, servers, bartenders. Um, another really fabulous example is Andy Shalal, who owns Busboys and Poets and Eatonville, all of this chain of restaurants in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Really great restaurants, casual fine dining, people of color, women in all positions. So there are some really standout examples that I provide in the book. Um, In terms of racial diversity, Danny Meyer also actually really does Mm -hmm. it well. He has a lot of people of color on the dining floor. So for those people who are outside of Manhattan, if you don't know Gramercy Tavern or uh, Union Square Cafe. The modern, that's right. Shake Shack is now taking over the world. (laughs) That's right. And um, in New York, you go to Bryant Park, there are lines around the block and they seem to be opening up restaurants at a fast and furious pace. Yes. Even his fast food chains, does he maintain that same? Oh, yeah. Shake Shack um, actually pays higher than almost any other. There are only a few chains. in and out Burger on the West Coast and in Texas is the highest paying chain in the country. Really? Uh, and then uh, Shake Shack as well. So, so let's break this down by restaurants because I, I have down a, a couple of really interesting Broad restaurant um, types, fine dining, Mexican, burgers, and coffee. Since we started with burgers, let's talk about burgers. So you mentioned In-N-Out Burger, right? California staple, um, and Shake Shack. To me, these are all fast food burgers, but these are the two amongst the best quality food burgers. Right. You're telling me everything else they do is also That's high right. Quality. I mean, In and Out has provided livable wages. I'm talking 13, 14, 15 and all. Really? Since the beginning, they provide paid sick days, they provide benefits, opportunities for advancement. They've just done it differently and they're growing and they're really successful. And come on, nobody could deny that Shake Shack is doing really well Fantastic. And paying workers a livable wage. Um, Five Guys was the other one that I thought was a good burger. Yes. I don't know how their their staffing. Yeah, stacks I mean, up. It, I think it varies in different regions, but mm-hmm. we have found several Five Guys restaurants that actually want to do the right thing, pay a livable wage, provide paid sick days. They're a little more varied across the country. Now, when we look at the rest of the burger sector, yeah. everything from McDonald's to Burger King to Wendy's to all the other small ones, 
really not good uh, employers. Well, it's not just that they're not good employers. They're actually the leaders of the National Restaurant Association. So what's important to note about these folks is they don't just follow the minimum wage and pay it. They They actually set the minimum wage. They're in Congress lobbying to keep the wage at Mm $7.25. That's unbelievable. And if you look at the, the structure of, you go around different states and you look at who is the highest recipient of Medicare, Medicaid, and aid to dependent children, depending on the state, it's either Walmart, although that's changed, or McDonald's. McDonald's workers as a group are a huge subsidized entity to the local franchisees. And it's actually not just McDonald's, this entire industry. So we spend $7 billion in taxpayer money on fast food chain workers, public assistance usage, and $9.5 billion on full service restaurant workers, public assistance usage. I'm talking about Applebee's and Olive Garden and IHOP. Those workers... Get, we're doubly subsidizing those full-service restaurants because they're multi-billion dollar companies. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we pay their workers' wages through our tips because they're paying $2.13 right. an hour. On the other hand, we're paying for their workers' survival through public assistance. So we are doubly subsidizing the IHOPs and the Applebee's and Olive Gardens of the world, and they're turning over incredible profits. I, I'm always offended when a profitable public company is subsidized by taxpayers. That really gets gets my goat. Let's talk about a different group of uh, restaurants, Mexican food. Yeah. Pr- except for Chipotle, pretty much terrible across the board. In terms of chains, yeah. I mean, there are really fabulous, independent Mexican restaurants around the country that do it right. La Palapa is one here in the city, in the village. Fantastic Mexican restaurant. Provides right. paid sick days. Has been an advocate for higher wages for a long time. Um, but among the chains, Chipotle does stand out. I mean, all the other chains are pretty terrible. Um, and I know Chipotle has been a lot in the news for other things lately, but I will say that they have been really good about asking what can we do better in terms mm-hmm. of our workers and then actually doing it. So when people want to find your sort of research and writing, where's the best place for them to look? Go to forkedthebook.com. And on that, you can actually see a website where you can see all the restaurants' ratings, how people faring on issues of wages, benefits, and promotions. You can also get the book and see the trailers. That's the best place. Thank you, Saru, for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with Saru Jayaraman. She is the director of Research Opportunity Center at UC Berkeley and author of the book Forked. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and hang around and listen to our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Saru, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been quite fascinating. Thank you. Um, Before, uh, during the broadcast segment, we had talked about burgers and Mexican food. One of the things I had to ask you, in the book, you break down the restaurant industry by segment by segment. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised to see under the coffee segment, look, I expect Dunkin' Donuts and Tim Horton and Panera to be mediocre. But Starbucks has a reputation. They offer health care. They do 401ks. I assumed they were pretty good. You tell me not so much. No, they've done a really amazing job at promoting the idea that they provide all of these things. Uh But they have been under so much fire over the last many years from workers. And journalists have uncovered this as well, that they just managed to consistently 
under provide just too little hours for workers to actually get those benefits. And so they employ lots of workers at very low wages with very little hours. Less than 30 hours. Oh, far less. Most workers in Starbucks get less than 20 hours. Really? So, and so they're uh, having to piece together multiple shifts, multiple jobs, uh-huh. and it's incredibly difficult to survive. And and I do recall reading that the, the shift changes happen really last minute. That's right. If you have to take care of a kid or exactly. you have other commitments, it becomes really challenging. Really challenging. Do. And when you're earning that little you know, childcare is like half of your income right. and you can't even get back in time because you're asked to stay longer to clean up or whatever right. and you end up paying more. I, I, my perspective is so skewed. You go into any Manhattan Starbucks, there are lines out the door. You see the same people working all week. I see the same faces all the time, but that's not how it is in the rest of the that's world. Not, that's not how it is. And even those workers, I think, you know, Starbucks, for how much they're charging us for coffee, could be paying these workers a lot better. But they're not well paid, and they're just not given enough hours to survive. So is it an overstatement to say Starbucks is the new McDonald's? <laughs> um, it's a new kind of McDonald's, because McDonald's doesn't make any pretension to being a good employer uh-huh. Starbucks does but unfortunately uh-huh. still so a pays as little as McDonald's PR. did yes. you ever work in any fast food restaurants no um I did a lot of no I didn't uh I worked in in high school I worked in a McDonald's I started on a Saturday and Sunday I gave them the hat and apron and I said you keep the paycheck I'm never coming back here and I'm never eating McDonald's again and that wow. was pretty much I think I might have on the road had a, a burger once but that's pretty much it. it because was, you didn't like the way you were treated. Um, no, it, uh, you you start out with a bag of dehydrated onions the size of your fifths, and you put it into a pan that's three feet by one foot, and fill it with water. And the next morning, yeah, they're reconstituted onions, and it makes you wonder what is the rest of this food-like stuff yeah. that you're eating. And and look, I'm a foodie. I like really good restaurants. Yeah. And I could eat fast food. I, I enjoy, you know, Shake Shack and, uh, you know, of uh, of all the fast food before the new rounds. It was Wendy's was much superior to McDonald's <laughs> and Burger King. Yeah. Because it was fresh. Yeah. And it felt like food. Yeah. Um, but really, anything that's mass produced like that and is consistent across the country is really just a food-like substitute and not actual nutrition. And that was the problem with that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are folks that are managing to get this, get quality to scale and good conditions to scale. And so, in the coffee world, one example is Blue Bottle Coffee. They are, but that's not a big chain, is no, it? They're there's growing really fast. Them. Well, there's they're in California, they're in New York, they're in Tokyo. They're oh, growing really? really rapidly. Yeah, we have one. Um, I think it's just off Broadway in nineteen. They're in I Brooklyn. Remember. It was really yeah, good. It's extremely high quality coffee, and they pay a livable wage. Huh. I'm talking closer to. Fifteen dollars an hour. Really? Yeah. That that's interesting. The um, the other place we were talking about earlier, Chipotle. Mm-hmm. One of the things. So we alluded to the problems they've had. Yeah. They had an E. coli breakout. Yeah. Which now, by the way, I forgot. Someone just came out and declared it's over. I don't know if it was CDC yes. or somebody yeah. else. But the issue they ran into is specifically because. They're not sourcing everything to one farm that they could closely exactly. monitor. It's all local, and that That's becomes right. much more challenging it to does, yeah. how do you stay on top of how people are washing their hands in the field at 10,000 local farms. Yeah, but it's still it's still the right way to actually have locally sourced, sustainable, organic food, you know, non-GMO. Right. And, and 
it's and, possible. It and is they've possible. done they've done really well. The the uh, the joke I tweeted the other day, the day of the Powerball lottery, was I'm feeling lucky, so I'm going to buy a, a Powerball lottery ticket and go to Chipotle for lunch. <laughs> and I only I one of them worked out, and the other one did not. So it was uh, that. What what about fine dining? So I was a little bummed to see. Del Frisco's on your list of bad fine dining establishments. Yeah. That's a great steakhouse, but no, now I'm, that I think about it, I've never had anyone. I've had some women servers, but everybody has been a uh, a white person. Yeah, the bar one of the bartenders there is of color, but it's a pretty, you know, white bread sort of. I place. mean, most of the chain fine dining steakhouses are actually leaders in the National Restaurant Association. Most of them. So they all follow that same what we call low road standard. You know? I always forget they're a chain because that they've they started out as a, like all the chains started out as a single steakhouse, and unless you see them pop, like you see Ruth, Chris, and Morton, so they pop up everywhere. Yeah, there's only a handful of Del Frisco, so I don't really think of it. What about the other steakhouses? Like, um, uh, I'm just trying to think of what's not a chain. Smith and Walensky has always been a Peter Luger's is another one. I don't think anyone who's working in Peter Luger's is less than a hundred years old. So <laughs> they 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 were hired before emancipation. It looks like. <laughs> right? It's it's. Am I right? It's a bunch of old white well, guys. Well, they are professionals, and I and I will say, I mean, even and they though make we, a boatload of money. Yeah, and we wish they were more diverse, but they are professionals who have a craft and do it really well, and that's we want. We want everybody to be valued the way they're valued. Right. You know? That's the right, I think that's the real right way to say it. So I know we only have you for a limited amount of time. You you have a couple of uh, places to run to. Let me go through some of my favorite questions that I ask all my guests, and I'll, I'll do the short version. So, so who are your early mentors? Who helped you, you know, public policy and Yale Law School? How do you become a restaurant advocate, <laughs> restaurant worker advocate? Oh, gosh. Um, Any professors stand out? Anybody stand out as steering you into this? Or was it just serendipity post 9-11? I mean, honestly, it was my family uh, who are immigrants from India. And, you know, immigrants are, my parents, like most immigrants, are just incredibly resilient, persistent, very politically astute, very right. aware of what was going on and angry. And for me, it was about turning that anger into positive action. And that's mm -hmm. what this has been about. So you were you were born in Rochester. Did your pa parents migrate to California? Yes. No, yeah, my parents, actually, I was the first baby born in the United States. They came from India, mm -hmm. had me in Rochester, and then we moved to California. Nicer um, weather. <laughs> nicer weather, least. better opportunities. Um, so that's the thing is that they've always sought better and better and better for their children. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of the immigrants. And right. for us, that's actually the story of this book too. It's the high road. It's continuously seeking to do better. Someone would, some people would say that's the story of America is that's immigrants, right. people constantly looking for a better opportunity that's right. for their kids. That's right. Yeah. And then the next generation, we get lazy and sloppy because <laughs> we don't know how bad it was over there. I'm right. sure like I heard, I'm sure you've heard stories yeah. growing up. Um, what are some of your favorite books? I don't care if it's fiction, nonfiction. 
What um, what influenced your thought process about this? I mentioned uh, Kitchen Confidential by yeah. Anthony Bourdain, yeah, which is both ribald and hilarious. Yeah, um, Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ehrenreich mm-hmm. was a really great. That was the book. Walmart employee. She worked uh, in Walmart she for a year. Worked undercover as a waitress, actually, uh-huh. as a domestic worker, as a house cleaner. And I can't remember what the third low wage job she did, but um, you know, she lived in her car, living uh-huh. on these wages. So that was really eye opening. Um, fiction, I love Arn the Theroy, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of books, international books, so real mix of things. And um, so what do you what do you see changing in the restaurant industry? What changes are taking place and, and what might change going forward? Yeah. So I'm sure everybody's heard a lot in the news about Danny Meyer and mm-hmm. this whole move to eliminate tipping. And, you know, we, Danny Meyer's company had actually been a part of our association of high road restaurants for mm-hmm. over a decade. Um, but he and I actually hadn't sat down. And when we finally did, we told him everything I've talked to you about today in terms of this whole history of tipping being, you know, rooted in slavery and the tip minimum wage and the impact on women and sexual harassment. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about these issues for 20 years. Really? Let's think about moving in a different direction. And so we worked with them over a series of months and they actually, you know, they did it right. They moved to eliminate tipping in a way that actually makes their workers whole. So they're ensuring that workers are now getting everything that they would have gotten in tips Mm -hmm. now through revenue share, now through wages. What's the transition been like for the restaurants? Have, have, what do customers say? Yeah. How has it worked out for everybody? I mean, everybody seems to be really happy. We interviewed workers. We interviewed customers. Uh, they've done it really well that they had town hall meetings with workers and customers and management. I mean, they just really had a very inclusive and transparent process. And that's how we would want it done. You know, our fight is not actually to eliminate tipping. We don't actually advocate for that. We're advocating for one fair wage with tips on top, as they have in California. But if, Really to raise the floor. Exactly. And ensure that the employers actually paying a full wage and let tips be on top of that. But if employers want to go further and eliminate tips altogether, we are supportive if they do it the way Danny Meyer did, which is inclusive and transparent and ensures that their workers are making everything they would have made in tips now through wages. So you work with a lot of students. You're, you're over at UC Berkeley. What sort of advice would you give to either a millennial or a, a college grad who says, I really want to get into the restaurant industry? I would say, um, well, definitely, I think, uh, stick with it, <laughs> you know, view it as a profession, um, give it your all and be a, join us and be a part with us of making it a better industry for everybody. So, you know, definitely focus on your career, you know, go all the way, definitely do your thing, but also join us in making it better because only by working with us to professionalize this industry will your work in this industry be valued. And our, our final question, what is it that you know about the restaurant industry that you wish you knew 20 years ago? That question always gives pause. Yeah. You know, when I when I remember as a law student and right after law school being a card-carrying foodie, I mean, I lived here in New York City. I ate three times out, <laughs> you know, three times a day out, and I ate everything, and I was totally oblivious. I cannot remember a single worker from all those years of really? eating out. And so now as a diner, when I eat out, I notice things. I notice the racial makeup of the of this restaurant. I notice how women are being treated. I, notice, I think about things like paid sick days and wages. And 
I just, I think all of us, I wish I had known this 20 years ago to be a different kind of diner. And I would encourage all of us to be a different kind of diner, to know what's happening in this industry and to really encourage this industry to take the high road. Saru, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Mike Batnick, and my recording engineer, uh, Charlie Vollmer. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up or down an inch on iTunes, and you could see the other 88 or so such chats we've had. Uh, be sure and check out Saru's other writings on ForkedTheBook.com. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.